It's a year until New Zealand hosts the Rugby World Cup, one of the largest international sporting competitions in the world. In this Radio New Zealand Insight programme, Clint Owens has been finding out how preparations are going and if the country will be ready. The tune and lyrics of the official Rugby World Cup song will become very familiar over the next year as the country counts down to Rugby World Cup 2011. With 12 months to go, organisers and others are working feverishly to make sure New Zealand puts its best foot forward. The success of the tournament will largely hinge on how years of planning are executed. Martin Sneddon, the Chief Executive of Rugby New Zealand 2011, which is running the event, is happy with how preparations are going. We are in a great position with one year to go and I know that there will be challenges, some of them foreseeable, some of them unforeseeable, that will rise to the surface in the next 12 months and we'll deal with those when they do. But I think all of the main basic ingredients are on track to make sure that we can deliver a great tournament. The Rugby World Cup Minister, Murray McCulley, is confident there are no loose ends. We can be confident we're going to deliver a really good result and I can put my hand on my heart and say that indeed is where we are across the planning process for Rugby World Cup 2011. And the reason we wanted to be there with a year to go is because we need to spend the next 12 months making something that's going to be a great event into an absolutely outstanding event. There is a whole lot more value to be added in virtually every way over the next 12 months. It's difficult to calculate the exact cost of hosting the Rugby World Cup but well in excess of half a billion dollars of taxpayer and ratepayer money is being spent preparing for it. About $550 million on the redevelopment of stadiums and building the new Dunedin ground. About $250 million alone will see Auckland's Eden Park transformed into a 60,000-seat venue for the Cup. New stands have been built and the project is now almost finished. As Eden Park Trust Chief Executive David Kennedy explains. The structures are all complete and the things that are remaining to be done now are largely internal fit-out works of the corporate areas, external landscaping and work around the grounds is being completed. Seating installation is well advanced, just needs to be completed along that lower level of the southern stand. The job is coming in probably and will be, will be complete probably a little bit ahead of time and will be available for the public to come and have a look at in October. David Kennedy says a Bledisloe Cup match next year will act as a good trial. At Wellington Stadium, where its leaky roof is being fixed, the World Cup Tournament Services General Manager Nigel Cass says work on grounds is largely done. After Eden Park's finished, the only stadium project that we're sitting waiting upon is Otago Stadium. There's no denying that that's going to go right down to the wire. You know, they're scheduled to finish that venue in August next year, and we're playing on it in the middle of September. That's a project that we're watching really, really closely. Everybody involved down there is doing a great job, but they've just got no room for anything to go wrong. Tournament services' duties will include being responsible for the look of match venues and running them, ensuring strict conditions for advertising clean zones around stadiums are adhered to, 
organising every aspect of the 20-team stay and handling fan zones and training grounds. The planning and preparation between now and September 9 is immense. We get all our partners on the same page with everybody absolutely understanding their job and just ready to make the 13 cities that are hosting games and the, the uh, further 10 cities that are hosting teams just really come alive. This is not the kind of event that you can sort of wake up on the Wednesday before and say, right, we've got a few games of rugby to run this weekend. You know, we really will need to um, use our time wisely. Nigel Cass says officials from qualified teams have all visited New Zealand at least once and most will return before the end of this year to tour all the facilities they'll use. Assisting teams and fans during the tournament will be several thousand volunteers who'll do all manner of jobs. The volunteer program manager, Brendan Ward, says for example about 700 volunteers will work in and around Wellington Regional Stadium on match days. Down here at the railway station we're going to have people helping people get on and off trains, making sure they get on the right train, making sure they know where to go, you know, if they're walking down and out of the concourse. And We've got probably about 40 different roles that we need to fill for the volunteers everything from drivers and right through to people that are ushering people to their seats in the stadium and uh, helping out in terms of uh, directions around the towns and welcoming people at the airports, all those kinds of roles. So it's going to be pretty exciting. Everyone who applies to be a volunteer, which is about 6,000 to date, will go through a police check. Currently, the police have five staff working full-time to prepare for the Rugby World Cup. Heading the police effort, which will involve thousands of officers, is Superintendent Grant O'Fee. We're not planning to shift hundreds and hundreds of police officers around the, the country other than a few specialist groups. So in the main, games will be policed from within the district that the game takes place in. Obviously in Auckland, with the semi-finals and finals, there will be a contribution from the three police districts in Auckland. But in general terms, Nelson will police Nelson from the Tasman district, Canterbury will police Christchurch and, and so on. So the numbers will vary from place to place. The operation, of course, doesn't cease when the game finishes for us. We, we police the town afterwards, just as we do for a, a Bledisloe Cup test now. And in terms of the threat of terrorism, is it a real threat? There's never any guarantees in this game. But we know, for example, it's a very, very minimal risk and we don't have any anything to suggest that New Zealand is going to be a target for a deliberate terrorist attack in the, in the Rugby World Cup. We certainly don't expect it. But we would be remiss in our duty if we didn't plan for it and be prepared for it. But there is absolutely nothing to suggest that that is the case. The main focus will be on everyday law and order issues. Superintendent O'Fee says if an incident developed that was beyond their capabilities, they'd have the option to ask the Defence Force for assistance, including SAS troops. The police say security at match venues will also be much tighter than when it was when newspaper reporters got into Super 14 games this year with fake explosives and no tickets. You've only got a few days left to get your applications in for tickets to Rugby World Cup 2011. In total, 1.65 million tickets are being put up for sale for the 48 matches. Half a million of them, which is about $76 million worth, were snapped up in the first ticketing phase. Rugby New Zealand 2011's Shane Harmon is confident most of the rest will be sold. We're targeting around 90%, so that's in dollar terms, it's about $268 million in revenue from ticketing alone, and that's exclusive of GST, and they're big numbers, so we don't shy away from that at all, and they're big numbers internationally. By New Zealand standards, they're pretty huge. The only comparable event is really the British and Irish Lions Tour in 2005, and 
I think the numbers were around $30 million. So even through our first phase, we're, we're about two and a half times that already. We need to sell about 1.45 million tickets to, to hit those targets. That's the, that's the plan, and uh, we're, we're pretty confident we're on track. We'll go through this individual ticket phase. We'll then do the ballot for the semifinals and finals. There are travel and hospitality packages being sold at the same time. Sponsors will buy tickets, etc., and then in the middle of next year, we'll have a very clear idea of what the remaining task at hand is. Money from ticket sales is Rugby New Zealand 2011's only source of revenue. And even if ticket sale expectations are met, the tournament will make a loss of about $40 million. The government will underwrite two-thirds of that loss, while the New Zealand Rugby Union will absorb the rest. The International Rugby Board will keep all money generated from television and sponsorship deals. This will run into the hundreds of millions of dollars. Martin Sneddon of Rugby New Zealand 2011 doesn't expect the loss to grow beyond the predicted $39.3 million. We monitor that all the time. There is an incredibly rigorous financial monitoring process that is going on at present, and both from a revenue point of view in terms of ticket sales and from an expender point of view, we're exactly on track. If we could sell every ticket that was available to us and if we were successful in containing the expenditure to what we're forecasting, then we would reduce the loss. I don't think we can eliminate the loss at all, but I think we can make some significant inroads into it. Although the tournament itself won't be profitable, losses should be offset by the economic benefits from hosting the event. Reports prepared for government and rugby officials estimate the economy will be boosted by more than $1 billion, including about $500 million of spending from international visitors. There has been some suggestion the benefits have been overstated, a view not shared by Martin Sneddon. Instinctively, I think, in an economic sense, that feels about right to me. I can see, for instance, the amount of money that is flowing through our organisation into things like transport and accommodation in New Zealand. If you extrapolate that out beyond what what our organisation is involved in to the much wider group of people that will be involved in the event, it's looking pretty substantial. But business representatives remain cautious. The Newmarket Business Association Chief Executive Cameron Brewer says the experience of the 2005 Lions Tour has businesses, and pubs in particular, going into the World Cup with their eyes wide open. You might remember the head of the Barmy Army came out and promised the earth and got on all the television and radio and said this was going to be bigger than Ben-Hur and that we all need to invest in plasma screens and outdoor furniture and upgrade the pubs and really get behind this because this is going to be huge. And sure there was some benefit but it didn't, it wasn't at that scale and it saw publicans kind of shy off it a bit. And so publicans five years on are going into this Rugby World Cup with their eyes wide open. Uh, obviously the Rugby World Cup's a lot bigger than the 2005 Lions Tour but publicans are seeing it as a six-week tournament. They'll take the cream, sure that'll be great, that'll be good for their business but it's not the be-all and end-all. The Hospitality Association Chief Executive Bruce Robertson says no one will be getting rich during the tournament. It's far from the huge money-making enterprise for most operators that perhaps uh, some New Zealanders perceive it to be. This is about promoting New Zealand for the long term and, and hoping to make a little bit of money as we go through. We've certainly been careful in advising our members to take care that they don't make huge investments on the basis that they're going to make a lot of money out of the World Cup. Certainly around the provinces, the number of visitors will be spread pretty evenly. We're encouraging our members that this is an opportunity to get New Zealanders out partying and the cream will come from the international visitors rather than the other way around. 
Rugby New Zealand 2011's Martin Sneddon agrees that the Cup isn't just a six-week event. The 45 days of Rugby World Cup is the best marketing and profiling opportunity that New Zealand has probably ever had on the international stage. So that if we can make sure that we do everything really well, make sure that the visitors that come here have a fantastic time, then it's reasonable to assume that that will have a really good flow-on effect for our tourism industry. Official estimates predict 85,000 visitors will come to New Zealand for the event, with up to 43,000 in the country at any one time. Martin Sneddon says it's a guesstimate really, and it could be 60,000, 80,000 or more. The Prime Minister John Key is more bullish, saying at least 85,000 will arrive. A Tourism New Zealand spokesperson, Suzanne Carter, says the job of attracting those visitors began some years ago. The initial piece of work that was done was for the giant rugby ball, which you may remember launched in Paris under the Eiffel Tower in 2007. Created huge media and people awareness actually all over Europe. Uh, The ball then went to London the following year and Tokyo the following year. And with each of, I guess, those installations of the ball, there seemed to generate more and more interest in what was going on and that New Zealand was hosting the Rugby World Cup. And obviously with the ball there's been a few critics saying it's been quite an expensive exercise that we won't know if it's really paid off. What what do you make of what the critics say? To my way of thinking, the ball is an extremely bold and innovative move. It has attracted over 300 million visits potentially in the the media that's covered it. 40,000 people have been through it and had a taste and experience of New Zealand. There is no way we could ever afford to get that kind of interest in New Zealand. Um, If you look at uh, actually how much it's cost, then you can easily equate that with what a typical large company would spend on its advertising in a year. It's very good value for New Zealand. A question that has lingered since New Zealand won the rights to hold the tournament is whether the country will have enough accommodation. More than 100,000 bed nights have already been booked. The Hospitality Association's Bruce Robertson says there shouldn't be any shortage because the tournament falls in the shoulder season. During our summer peak we have something like 250-280,000 international visitors here every day. During the period of the World Cup it might be 150-180,000. So when you put it into that context, apart from the last two weeks when there will be a bit of pressure on in Auckland, New Zealand will easily be able to cope. And not all those visitors that are here are going to be here for the World Cup. There will be other visitors here doing other things around the country, so they'll be probably avoiding Auckland at that particular time because there'll be pressure on rooms and prices. He says what's known as the crowding out effect, or the deferment of travel, will also be a factor. People that are planning to come to New Zealand at that time that aren't interested in rugby will be deferring their travel, either coming before or after. So you'll have that sort of period both before and after the Cup where some people won't see New Zealand as quite an attractive proposition. Martin Sneddon, head of the organising team, believes the only issues may come towards the end of the event. We've got the capacity to deal with it. During the pool phase, there's no problem whatsoever around accommodation. There's 20 teams here. They're spread all over the country. It's really only during those final three weekends of the tournament that we just have to make sure that we're managing all of the options that exist and making sure that the travellers can actually find a bed. Three cruise ships with a combined 5,500 beds will also berth in Auckland in the final stages of the tournament, and this will ease the pressure slightly on accommodation. And with strong demand for beds has come the headlines of price gouging. Numerous articles have documented cases of accommodation providers and homeowners asking for what appear to be outrageous prices. Chief Executive of Tourism Auckland, Graham Osborne, 
says the gouging claims are troubling. Fortunately, those stories are very, very much in the minority. The market in the end is going to determine a sensible outcome to that and excessive pricing just encourages the consumer to look elsewhere and find solutions to the itinerary elsewhere and, and so we would not expect price gouging will be a significant feature of this event. Martin Sneddon says while some of the prices out there are far too hopeful, it's not necessarily a bad thing the headlines have surfaced. It makes people stop and think, our reputation is at risk here, we just have to make sure we find the right balance with our pricing as against demand. And because we are uh, still a year to go, it's probably a good thing that that sort of chatter is happening before the free independent travel market really starts to focus on whether or not it is going to come to New Zealand. So if that has uh, a flow-on effect, I think it probably will be a useful one domestically. I don't think that sort of stuff gets a huge pickup overseas. I think people will make their judgments when they're actually able to access the accommodation and see exactly what's been charged and they'll get a much better feel for whether or not what's been asked at that stage is fair. Demand for the country's 5,500 camper vans is also expected to be strong. But the Rental Vehicle Association Chief Executive Raywin Blankley says just how strong won't be known for some months. Twelve months out, that's when most of the online booking systems actually allow you to make bookings. So if they're planning on staying in New Zealand for the entirety of the tournament or even hopefully even staying for a longer period after the tournament to enjoy some of the New Zealand scenery, etc., then they won't be able to make those bookings until they're a year out from that date. Running alongside the tournament will be the real New Zealand festival. Held around the country, its aim is to give visitors and New Zealanders something to do on non-match days. $9.5 million of contestable funding is available for interested organisations, which will be distributed once applications close later this month. The festival director, Bryony Ellis, says scores of events ranging from cultural activities to wine and food festivals have already been confirmed. When we first kind of started to talk about the festival, it had about 100 events on it. It's now got about just over 300, and we think, well, I think just by just finger-in-the-air kind of assessment, that it's probably going to be around 1,000 by the time we kick off the tournament. Event organisers are being told they should reflect the essence of their region. The Venture Hawks Bay Regional Event Manager for the Rugby World Cup, Peter Mooney, says that's exactly what will be happening in Hawks Bay. We're very lucky here in Hawke's Bay in that we have a lot of things that we can promote the whole wine and food industry for a start. And of course, Nadi Kahanunu, the local iwi, are very strongly involved and have the intention and indeed the plans well advanced to produce a number of activities. In northern Hawke's Bay in Wairo, the Wairo Museum is running an exhibition on the, the life and times of George Nepia, perhaps one of New Zealand's most famous All Blacks. New Plymouth's Cup plans are also well advanced, as a council spokesperson, Cathy Thurston, explains. What we're planning to have here, which we gather is going to be incredibly unique, is an international village, which will showcase a lot of Maori culture and tradition, but in a different way than's done like at Rotorua. It will be far more interactive. The other activities we've got planned over that time is we want to have our lights on in Pukekura Park because we think that's a wonderful venue for people to have a look at. We're going to be having a rugby exhibition in Pukeriki. Len Lai is going to be on display at Givet Brewster Art Gallery. For the smaller host cities, the matches and the festival promise to inject a welcome level of activity. But how will Auckland cope, especially towards the end of the event? Auckland will host eight pool games both semi-finals and the final. The event is expected to generate $267 million of direct economic benefit for the city. 
After much wrangling, a decision was made recently on what shape Party Central at Queen's Wharf will take. One of the two historic sheds will be renovated and a temporary structure also erected. The inability to finalise those plans drew the ire of the government and raised a wider question of whether factions in Auckland could pull together for the sake of the tournament and the city's reputation. The Rugby World Cup Minister, Murray McCulley, says Auckland needs to get it right. Auckland has so much more of the value of this event available to it than absolutely anywhere else in the country. The final and the semis, but also just the sheer focus of activity on our major hub. This is Auckland's chance to present its face to the world as a truly international city. Conversely, it's also our opportunity to stuff things up. And so we need to remember that as we go through the next 12 months. Here we are at the end of Queen's Wharf. As we know, this has been confirmed as the premier fan zone celebration site for Rugby World Cup come 2011. Rachel Dacey is the chair of the Auckland Regional Rugby World Cup steering group. Auckland is in a great position and I, I know that there are doubters out there and certainly when I first came over to work here three years ago on, on Rugby World Cup there was lots of commentary about will we be ready and the proof's in the pudding. Um, we look at the infrastructure, you know, Eden Park on track, Kingsland Station, Morningside Station completed. Yes, all our roading projects on track are already open. Many of the Delhi Commonwealth Games organisers, I think, would be quite envious of the position that we're actually in a year out from the tournament. So the infrastructure side is well on track, and that's the long lead projects. But in addition to that, the whole planning around how the community will be involved, how the city will be marketed to the international audience, how we'll ensure that businesses leverage from the tournament, huge amount of planning over the last three or four years, and we'll start to announce various programs and projects as we get closer so that the community, business community, residents, ratepayers can understand and see what it's actually going to feel like during Rugby World Cup. Graham Osborne of Tourism Auckland has no doubts the city can cope with hosting tens of thousands of rugby fans, especially at the end of the tournament. This is where our reputation legacy will hinge. This is the period we need to be really focused on ensuring that everyone here for the event has a fantastic time. Auckland is well geared up. We've been working on this now for well, ever since the bid was lodged in Dublin. We've been actively pursuing and organising for this occasion, so we're absolutely confident that we'll be ready and waiting when this time rolls around. An important gauge of whether Auckland is coping will be the city's roads. The Transport Agency has brought forward a number of roading projects to reduce congestion, as its Auckland Regional Director Wayne MacDonald explains. It's been important to make sure that access from south of Auckland and for South Auckland and for people at the bottom of the Auckland Isthmus to get access to the rugby ground. So we've completed three sections of motorway network which join together give 20 kilometres of brand new motorway which will be open for the game. And the access from the south means that people can travel at 100 kilometres an hour on six-lane motorways right across from South Auckland and up just short of Eden Park. People are now reporting that from the airport, which is also an important dimension of this because it greatly improves access from the airport to Eden Park and into the city for those that are visiting, and it's cutting 20 minutes off the journey time. The Auckland Regional Transport Authority is hoping large numbers will use public transport, especially on match days. The man in charge of planning for that is Bruce Barnard. We'll be providing free public transport to the games, free services on the rail network, three hours out prior to the game, 
and we'll be running a, a range of special event services from Manukau, uh, Botany, Pakaranga, Midtown, Sky City, Takapuna, North Shore. So all those services, all those special event services will be free to uh, the people with an event ticket. A legacy at the end of the event is that people will go and use it as a commuter service. All major events around the world have a large percentage of people using public transport and we're following suit with international standards. He says upgrades to the Morningside and Kingsland train stations, roading improvements and the new White Airport Swamp Walk will help ensure getting to Eden Park isn't a chore. Mr Barnard says the main challenge now is testing transport plans. We've got a number of opportunities at Eden Park coming up with the Four Nations in November which will test the plan. We'll have a number of opportunities in February with the Super 15 season and then of course uh, hopefully a Bledisloe Cup before the Rugby World Cup. So it's just ironing out all the little problems we've got. Nothing runs perfect first time you do it, but we'll just iron out those problems. And the same thing happens with North Harbour. We've got a major event strategy that we'll look at implementing for the All Whites match up there on 9th of October. And again, we'll just really have a look at what we're doing and how the plan works. Bruce Barnard says the fact school holidays fall in the final weeks of the Cup will also help the transport situation in Auckland. The money being spent preparing for the Rugby World Cup raises another question. Will it create white elephants? The experience from the 1990 Commonwealth Games shows it's possible. The custom-built Monaco Velodrome is now too run down for competitive cycling, and the rifle range at Mangatafuri is a grassy field. Eden Park will become a 50,000-seat venue once temporary seats are taken out after the World Cup. And the Auckland Park Trust Chief Executive David Kennedy says they'll be working hard to ensure the park is used more often. Historically, at least, Eden Park's been the home of, of cricket and rugby. Going forward, we've got a mandate to bring other sporting activities and cultural activities to Eden Park. So we're hopeful of it getting a lot of use and getting filled up on a, on a regular basis. I think apart from a more diverse range of activities, I think the quality of the new facilities means that more people will want to come and experience it. And when they do come and they enjoy it, it'll encourage them to, to come back again. Head of the organising team, Martin Sneddon, is convinced there'll be no useless facilities connected to the Cup in Auckland or elsewhere. Every piece of stadia infrastructural upgrade that's been done will have a long and useful life beyond Rugby World Cup. I think the upgrades that are happening around transportation around New Zealand will all have a long-term benefit uh, for the regions where that's happening. I can't think of a single project that is underway that has no ongoing usefulness beyond Rugby World Cup. Watching everything closely is the International Rugby Board. Its subsidiary, Rugby World Cup Limited, is responsible for the hosting and delivery of World Cup tournaments. Its general manager, Ross Young, says New Zealand is delivering on what it promised, and locking in all the details is what needs to happen now. It's just going through and reviewing where we're at and making sure there are no uncertainties moving forward. RNZ 2011 and the team here have done a fantastic job in putting together the framework. You know, we've just got to lock down all the other elements, the festival elements and the overall tournament delivery now. We're not a million miles away from doing that, so there, there are no concerns from our side, for sure. You know, we've got the closest working relationship that we've ever had with any of the host territories previously. So, yeah, I mean, if there are always going to be issues and there are always going to be concerns that pop up, but the good thing about it is the transparency and the openness of the relationship that we've got with the guys here. Martin Sneddon says he's confident Rugby World Cup 2011 will be a success and that it will leave a lasting legacy. My own hope is that it will mainly rest around how we feel about ourselves, is that if we do a terrific job delivering the event, if we make sure that we do a terrific job hosting thousands of international visitors, then I think that the intangible but very 
real feel-good factor that will exist in New Zealand will provide us with a platform that if people think about it and take the opportunity is that we will find that we will go on and do a whole lot of other things off the back of having gained confidence from doing a, a successful Rugby World Cup. If we actually see ourselves doing a terrific job, then the chances are that we will try more, take more chances and succeed more and that can only help the growth of our nation. A great unknown is whether the All Blacks will add to that World Cup legacy. That Radio New Zealand Insight programme was written and presented by Clint Owens. Technical production was by William Saunders and it was produced by Sue Ingram.